0: Thank you. Uh, as, as Joe said, my name is Phil. Um, thank you guys for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. I really love you guys. I love East Colfax. And I know that that might be kind of weird to hear because you probably don't know me. Right now, the relationship that we have is sort of, um, if you've ever been to like a family reunion and you meet this relative that uh, you didn't even know you had, but they're like super excited to see you because they have like memories of you being a kid and them holding you and... Uh, maybe changing your diaper. That's sort of the uh, relationship we have. I feel like I know you guys. You guys don't really know me. And to be honest, I don't actually know you guys, but I'm very excited to be here. I feel like I already love you guys. So thank you for having me. you changed your diapers. I've changed your diapers. Yeah, I should have cut that out. Um, as Joe said, I'm the pastor of TNL. I've been doing that for about 10 years. Uh, I've been attending TNL for 19 years. Um, so I started going to TNL when I was a freshman in high school which was um, I'm very fortunate that I found TNL when I did. It changed my life, and it is still weird to me that I am now the pastor of TNL, having grown up there. But um, a couple more things about me, just so that we feel like maybe I'm not that weird uncle that you didn't know that you had. Um, I'm married to a woman named Michaela. There she is. She's amazing. She's incredible. She's hilarious. Um, Together we have a baby named Daisy, who is 20 months old. There she is. That was yesterday. She was playing outside with the snow, making a tiny little snowman. Um, She is just the best. Um, I love her. Everything that people say about becoming a parent that is cliche is 100% true, which is frustrating and annoying, but also amazing. Um, Also, I know that it's weird when you don't have a kid and people still tell you their kid's age in months. So 20 months is like almost two. She should be talking like any day now, which I'm terrified and excited about. Um, how many of you here are familiar with or just huge fans of Enneagram? Okay, great. So like half the room. Um, I, I am an Enneagram 6. So this is not unique to me, but foundational to my struggle or my identity is a desire for certainty. Uh, particularly certainty when it comes to my faith. Um, I want to have certainty that God exists, that he hears me, that he is in control of things. Um, I want to have some sort of certainty about the afterlife, like what on earth happens when we die, because I have faith in God, but I also have a lot of doubts. Um, we live in a complicated world. How could you not have doubts? Um, how can you navigate integrating science and faith without bumping up into doubts? How can you want to be someone who is reason, reasonable and rational, and still hold to some of the truths that we claim. Um, How do you make sense of horrific things in the world, like the coronavirus right now, of death and poverty seeming to be always present, um, of corrupt administrations, the ending of my friend's marriages, failed adoptions, miscarriages, children suffering abuse? It feels like evil is so pervasive and ever-present. So there's a lot of room for doubt. I think every person who has faith and is honest at some point has doubts. This doesn't diminish our faith. Uh, many heroes of our faith have carried doubts. Uh, Martin Luther talked pretty openly about his doubts. C.S. Lewis has written tons about doubt in general and about his doubts. Um, we know after her death from her letters that Mother Teresa uh, was racked with feelings of doubt most of her life. Um, Pope Francis writes about doubts. Do not panic. We all have them which I think is so beautiful and so blunt. You don't have to like the Pope. That's fine. I happen to really like him, even though I'm not Catholic. Um, I think he's a great guy. Um, These giants of our faith, these giants of persistent hope, um, which I think is a beautiful definition for what faith is, persistent hope. So I'm going to be using those two interchangeably tonight. Uh, These giants of faith, these giants of hope, have or had doubts. Because despite what you may have heard, doubt is not the opposite of faith or of hope. The opposite of faith and hope is certitude. Certitude is absolute certainty that something is true. So if you think about it, an absolute certain world is a hopeless world. You don't hope for things um, that you're certain about happening, right? That seems silly. You hope for things that you hold some element of doubt about. Doubt is an essential element of hope. It is an essential element of faith. And at the same time, I don't want to diminish the fact that our doubts can can smother our hope. Hope is risky and scary, and it leaves us exposed. Certainty, um, though I'm not sure it's actually attainable, feels safe. It feels secure. It feels protected. And so when our doubts are battered by repeated disappointments, when God doesn't show up the way that we expected or the way that we wanted or maybe at all, it hurts. We feel betrayed. We feel stupid and lost. And we begin to doubt. At times, these doubts are little, uh, can be little more than annoyance, like a gnawing in the back of your mind. Other times, they can be devastatingly painful. When the deepest convictions and foundations of who you are and what you believe are suddenly in question, that can be really disorienting. Um, when you have so much dissonance in your head because the facts in your head don't line up with how you feel in your heart, that can be really hard. That can feel like torture. I think it's in these times that doubts can push us to protect ourselves. Doubts can push us to, to move towards the safety of certitude. I think our doubts are like potential energy. So there are opportunities for us to either embrace mystery and risk and persistent hope, or there are opportunities for us to try to protect ourselves with the illusion of safety that certainty offers. Doubt is not the opposite of hope or of faith. The opposite of persistent hope is certitude. God calls us to hope to persistent hope, not to certitude. Yet, I think so often, we are pressured to arrive or at least claim some level of certainty, right? Um, Like I said, uncertainty is really uncomfortable. You feel out of control. It threatens stability. It threatens the status quo. And so in our culture, we feel pressure towards certitude from both within and outside the church. I think in our larger culture outside the church today, Um, We're told that anything that you can't be absolutely certain of is an illusion and it's not worth your time. Anything that can't be proven um, with empirical scientific data is worthless, which has bred a sense of disdain for people of faith, for people within the church, as being foolish and unintelligent, simple-minded and unwilling to think. A.J. Sherrill, a pastor that we're pretty big fans of around here, who is in Michigan, writes this, For many in our day, faith is a silly exercise of neglecting the mind. But faith is not checking your mind at the door. Faith is embracing the possibility that this world is far more mysterious than society would have you know. I love this quote, and I steal it all the time um, because I think it is such a perfect picture of our world right now. There's this pressure outside the church to arrive at certitude. But there's also pressure from within the church, and this is something that... um, continually makes me really angry. Uh, People within the church often treat others within the church who have doubts as inferior or as less than. Doubt is something to be avoided in church. It's something to be quarantined and fixed in others. It's something that people often say from up front that doubt is something to wage war against. So people who have doubts, um, so people who breathe, uh, feel like they can't voice their doubts. They feel like doubts are wrong, that, that maybe God will be mad at them. Maybe they'll be rejected by the church. I have friends who have walked away from faith because they have been treated this way. But deep and strong faith is not faith that doesn't doubt. Because that's, faith that doesn't doubt isn't faith, that's certitude. Peter Enns, a biblical scholar and author, writes, A biblical model of faith isn't about trying to feel certain about your beliefs, but being willing to commit to living a certain way despite the fact that you're not certain. So from both inside and outside the church, there's this desire and pressure towards certainty. And we're caught in the middle of this tug of war, which is actually, I think, the place where God calls us to this place of mystery, of faith, of hope and doubt. So if you struggle with doubt, please hear this. You don't need to be ashamed of your doubts. You don't need to hide them. Spiritual maturity is not the absence of doubt. Doubts are opportunities to hope. Doubts push us into faith. Doubts keep us honest with God and others. Which brings us to our text for this evening. Though you guys already read it together, which, by the way, I think is a really cool practice that your church does, um, I'm going to quickly read it out loud again. Um, This is John 20, verses 19 through 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, if doubt is part of the journey of faith, I think we can learn a lot from this guy who gets the nickname from the story of Doubting Thomas. It's not really a fair nickname at all. Uh, it's not the sole aspect of Thomas's character. Uh, I don't know why he gets stuck with it. Honestly, Peter betrays Jesus like several times, but we don't call him betraying Peter. But Thomas gets stuck with this. It's like one thing that happens and he will never live it down. Uh, Over the past few years, I have come to really feel a a lot of resonance with Thomas. I see so much of myself in him, which gives me a lot of hope. Um, One commentator described Thomas as someone who expects the worst and then is surprised when good happens, which I read and made me angry. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you guys have had this situation, but like, especially back when I was in college, someone would tag me in a Facebook picture, and you can request to have them untagged, and you have to say why, and one of the options is, I'm in this picture, and I don't like it, and that's what I felt when I read the description of Thomas. <laughs> Please, untag me. Uh, to understand the story of doubt of Thomas, we need a little backstory. Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. That means that he has given up a lot to follow Jesus, who is this nobody Nazarene at the time. Thomas has given up his family, his friends, basically his life, and he is loyally followed Jesus. Even as resistance has grown to Jesus, even as Thomas's own life has become endangered for following Jesus, he is loyal. Uh, We have two scenes prior to this famous doubting story that we just read of Thomas that help us understand him a little bit more. The first is John 11, and the disciples and Jesus have just left Jerusalem to hang out kind of in the suburbs because they catch wind that uh, people are plotting to kill Jesus. So they get out of the city to let it cool down a little bit. Like as soon as they finally get out of the city, Jesus gets word that one of his best friends has died. And so he says to them, hey guys, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the city so that I can be with my friend's family while they're mourning. And his disciples are like, dude, you're crazy. Like we just left there. They're going to find you. They're going to kill you. And Jesus says, guys, calm down. It's going to be awesome. Just trust me. And so he starts walking back to the city. This is one of my favorite things that Thomas ever does. He turns to the other disciples after Jesus is walking away and he says, all right, let's go die with him. Like, we don't want him doing this by himself, and I am that loyal that, like, we're going to follow him even if it means that we die. Another scene that we have is in John 14, um, where Jesus starts saying to his disciples, I'm going to go away to a place and prepare a place for you there, and then you will join me. You know the way to get to where I'm going. It's one of these times that Jesus starts talking really cryptically, and Thomas calls him on it. He's like, dude, what are you talking about? We have, how can we know where to go when we have no idea what you're talking about or no idea where you're going? And that's when Jesus famously says the, the, the phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have these two scenes of Thomas that show us that, that his character is so much more than doubting. He is loyal, he is courageous, he's honest. He had a deep desire to understand, and he's also a doubter. It's really good for me to hear that those things can coexist. Uh, Pick back up on our story. We're in chapter 20. Jesus has just been killed on the cross. And we see Thomas, a man who has given up so much to follow Jesus and followed him with so much hope, is now crushed. He's fearful. He's angry. He's alone. On the night of Resurrection Sunday, Jesus appears to the 10 disciples. Um, He shows them his wounds and they're overjoyed. But we're told that Thomas isn't with them. That's a significant detail that we're told. Thomas has just spent the last three years with this group of guys. These are his people. He belongs with them, especially after something terrible like Jesus being killed just happened. But we're told that he's not there. He is so devastated that he, he puts himself in isolation. I think we can all relate to this feeling. Our instinct when we face doubt and pain and suffering is to isolate ourselves, to contract into ourselves ourselves. I think so often the exact opposite is it's the exact opposite of what we need. We need to experience grace and community the the times when we most want to hide. Isolating himself isn't helpful for Thomas ultimately because he misses seeing Jesus. Eventually though Thomas makes his way back to his friends and they tell him about seeing Jesus. But Thomas says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he's doubting, right? He's hearing these accounts from his friends, but he's not convinced. He's saying, friends, I don't believe you. They are giving him what should be the greatest news of his life that should alleviate any grief that he's feeling, any disappointment or anguish. But he's feeling these things so deeply that he refuses to hope. He says, unless I have the exact same experience, unless God meets my exact demands, I will not believe. He's so wounded at this point that he's not even willing to entertain the notion that what his friends are saying is possible. Thomas basically says, guys, he's dead. He's not who he said he was. These last three years have been a waste. He was a fraud. Give it up. It's over. Thomas is in pain, and he attempts to protect himself with doubt. Thomas's disappointments, his dashed hopes, have turned to doubts that are keeping him or or pushing him to seek certainty. And the best certainty that he can come up with is that Jesus was a fraud. Doubts can so often protect us. Thomas's doubt protected him from further pain, from further disappointment, from the embarrassment of spending the last three years with someone who was lying to him. What do your doubts protect you from? Like Thomas, do they protect you from painful wounds? Um, From fears, do they help you feel safe? Do they mitigate risk? Do they keep you from being disappointed or feeling foolish? Uh, For me, doubt, at least in part, is is a front. Because I want people to think that I'm sophisticated and intelligent, and I I fear being dismissed as foolish or simple-minded. So my doubts give me a feeling of safety. I don't have to fully buy into anything if I doubt. I can keep myself close to the exits in case something goes wrong and bail is at the first sign of trouble back to our story. Um, We're told that a week later, the disciples are back at the same house. This time, Thomas is with them. Again, this is significant. Thomas doubts, but he's still persistent. He doubts the fundamental thing that still keeps this group of people together, and yet he still belongs with them. I think this is a, a beautiful image of what the church should be like. You cannot believe the same thing as any other person in here, and you still belong here. And I know that that is true um, of this place. Um, It's part of why I supported Joe and Ruben being hired to lead here, because I knew that they would create a space where this is true. And where our hope is that in you belonging here, you'll develop relationships of trust and hear stories that encourage a persistent hope inside of you. So this time Thomas is with the disciples and Jesus shows up. And we read, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Which, I mean, if you read that, it sounds weird, right? Like, hey, put your hand in here. Like, that's a weird thing to hear from one of your best friends that you thought was dead. But it's what Thomas asked for. So uh, Jesus (laughs) lets him have it. Uh, He shows up a week later. Jesus does. He's not in a rush. He lets Thomas linger for a week, hearing his friend's stories about this experience that he missed out on. And then he shows up, contrary to what so many of us have been led to believe about God in doubt, and he's not angry. He's not disappointed at Thomas. He doesn't balk at Thomas's demands. He immediately meets Thomas's demands. In compassion, Jesus gives Thomas exactly what Thomas thinks he needs. And then he calls him to something more. Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. That word for doubt is apistos. And the word for believe is pistos. So, and pistos is the word, the Greek word for faith. So what Jesus is saying is don't be faithless and be faithful. Have hope. He doesn't say stop questioning and be certain for the rest of your life. He calls Thomas to faith. He calls Thomas to persistent hope. He doesn't leave Thomas in doubt. He also doesn't leave him with simple fact verification. Because God calls us to persistent hope, not to certitude. Jesus leaves Thomas in love, calling him to relationship. Relationship with anyone, God or human, requires persistent hope and faith far more than any certainty or any fact verification. Thomas encounters the presence of a God who loves him deeply. And he responds in verse 28 by saying, My Lord and my God. That is significant. That is a unique Jewish phrase to identify the Messiah, and it's incredibly relational. So Thomas finally understands. By saying this, he shows that he finally understands that it's about relationship. It's about persistent hope. It's not about certain, certainty. God calls us to persistent hope, not certitude. Our scene concludes in verse 29 with this. Then Jesus told them, "Believe you have, "'Because you have seen me, you have believed.'" Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I admit, in my doubt and in my moments of cynicism, that phrase seems way too convenient, right? Of course he'd say this. Of course the author who wrote this down would write, it's better for you to just take our word for it than to see it for yourself. At least that's how I have often felt when I read this. But I think there's a better explanation of what's going on here. I think if, if the resurrection is true and Jesus said this, which I think is true, Um, I think he certainly had you and I and everyone else that he knew would be believing in him without seeing him physically resurrected um, in mind when he said these things. But we have to also remember that he's still talking to 11 people right in front of him. And he's preparing them um, because he knew there would be moments ahead where they would not have him physically there with them. They would need to have persistent hope. He's saying, even though you're seeing me in front of you right now, alive, complete with wounds, there are still going to be moments when the memory of this experience is not enough to convince you that everything that happened, happened. You're going to have to have hope and faith and trust. You're going to have to risk stepping into the unknown. Certainty is not going to be an option. This experience with Jesus filled Thomas um, and instilled him with persistent hope. So much so that he went on to plant churches throughout his life all the way as far as India. He suffered greatly for his faith. He was eventually martyred for his faith. And he remained faithful even when he could no longer verify Jesus' physically resurrected body. Still, if you're anything like me, it's easy to think... Thomas got the benefit of three plus years of following Jesus around, and then he eventually did get to see Jesus post-resurrection and got to put his hand in his side, which again is a weird thing to ask. But if I had that experience, I'd believe too. So how do we come to experience God today, 2,000 years later, when we don't have access to Jesus in a physically resurrected body? When he's not standing physically in front of us talking to us? I don't have a simple answer for this. Um, If I did, I I might be famous. I'd certainly have written a lot of books. Um, But I'm convinced that the church being called the body of Christ is not just a cute metaphor. I think it is our purpose. We're supposed to be a visible representation of an invisible God. We're supposed to be the means of blessing to the whole world. We're supposed to be windows through which um, the God of creation can be seen and felt physically. In the absence of the physical body of Jesus, God has given the world you and me and me. And us and each other. That's an incredible calling. It doesn't mean that the church is perfect or even close to a perfect reflection of Jesus, but it does mean that we experience God through the community of saints as we offer um, images to the world and to each other of what true joy and true love and grace and forgiveness and generosity and compassion and persistent hope look like. It's in community that we, we experience so many aspects of who God is. Thomas encountered Jesus not in isolation, but in the community of the saints, the same community that we still participate in today. Now, this isn't a hard or fast rule. It doesn't mean that God can't or won't or doesn't meet us when we isolate ourselves. But because we are the physical representation of the living God, I think we are much more readily and tangibly able to experience God in community. I can tell you that I still only have faith. I still only have persistent hope in God because of the experience of of what I've experienced of his love through my community. My community of people who continually extend love and grace to me. People around me who gave me hope, um, continue to give me hope that maybe this God exists and maybe he even loves me even when I can't bring myself to believe in him. Something I've told my community at TNL before, which I think applies Uh, to all of us when it comes to doubt is this, expand, don't contract. The temptation, the default, the tendency is to to isolate and contract into ourselves, to pull back. When what I think we need, like I said earlier, is the exact opposite. We need to push outside of our current boundaries. Sometimes when you're doubting, it means that your current worldview just doesn't work anymore and you need to break out of it. If you're doubting, don't isolate yourself, push into this place. Experience God through these people. All of us need to be reminded that we are the visible representation of an invisible God to each other and to the world. So when our friends and members of our family um, in moments of vulnerability share their doubts with us, we need to be the reflection of the risen Jesus to them in those moments. We need to meet um, meet them with their doubts in love and compassion, not in anger or fear. We need to be willing to sit with them in their doubts. We need to be willing to answer their questions by saying, I don't know, when we really don't know, rather than to try to fix their doubts with vapid answers. We need to resist the urge to distance ourselves from people who are feeling uncertain. We need to help them resist the urge to isolate themselves. We need to be the grace of God for each other, especially in these moments. Another thing that I want to say if you have doubts that are pulling you towards the lure of certitude Don't hide behind your doubts. Lean into them. Learn as much as you can about what you're struggling with. Pursue it. Read as much as you can. Read more than just Western white males' thoughts. We don't have a monopoly on truth. Read as much as you can. There's a lot out there to find out. And there's a lot that will encourage you and inspire you in persistent hope. I'm not sure that there's anything out there that will give you certainty. And if you find it, please let me know. But I think... It may be the things that you find will help you learn to step out into mystery and be comfortable with not being certain. So to wrap up and review, doubt is part of the journey of faith. It's the means by which our hope and our faith is deepened. At times it feels like a little annoyance in the back of our mind, and at other times it can be completely devastating. I know what these struggles are like Um, from my own years of, of my own doubts, and years of sitting with my closest friends. I I know the pain that doubt brings. It's not easy. And in those moments, what you want is certainty. You want stability. The last thing you want to think about is expanding, of pushing more into the unknown, of being around people who care about you, of pushing into persistent hope. Jesus doesn't seem to rescue us from things as much as he walks us through things. So, while I wish that there's something I could say to magically clear up any of your doubts or any cognitive dissonance you're having, I can't. But here's a summary of what I can offer. Everyone has doubts. Everyone. You don't have to hide yours, you don't have to feel inferior for having them. Expand, don't contract, lean into your doubts. And be persistent. Stay connected to this community. You cannot believe exactly like everyone else here, and, and you can still belong here. You can have doubts and questions. You don't have to hide them. You can openly share them with his, for as long as they're with you. Those doubts and questions would never ultimately be satisfied by anything I or anyone else says, only through an encounter with God. And he is often not in a rush. He is frustratingly not in a rush. God is sometimes willing to let us linger in a place that we find that we belong hearing stories from other people that pique our curiosity and leave our hearts open to hope until he does show up, often in surprising ways, and reveals himself to us. The world around us, the world in, uh, inside of us, cries out for the safety of certainty, especially when we're experiencing doubt. But God calls us, his people, to persistent hope, not certitude. We pray with me? God, thank you that you don't require us to be certain of anything to still be in relationship with you. God, I pray that as we um, feel the pressure more and more to arrive at some certainty, as we feel the pain of our doubts, that we would be able to use them as things that... um, deepen our faith. As scary as they feel, help us to push into them and find you there. God, thank you that you are always with us, that you don't leave us behind and don't wait for us to get our act together or to arrive at some level of belief before you are there. You are with us. Even when we reject you, you are with us. God, I pray for anyone in the room who has been experiencing debilitating doubt, has been waiting for you to show up, but you're lingering. God, I pray that you would show up in a way that they cannot deny, and that they would feel your love and grace, and that they would feel the freedom to embrace mystery and to let go of certainty. God, we love you. Amen.